Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. And we started physical therapy this week, and uh, I'll be doing it three times a week for the next month, hopefully getting things back on track. Because currently I can't even sit down for very long without it hurting. Um, and without, uh, without it um, bothering me. And what happened is they, they, they took me in, and there's a few different exercises I do. I also get to lay on an inversion table, which if you don't know what that is, it's where they kind of hang you upside down by your, by your legs. You're laying down on a table, and, it, and it's supposed to decompress your spine. I don't know if that's actually what's happening. All I know is it's kind of cool, um, <laughs> so I'm going with it. But what's interesting to me is, is both of the, the nurse techs that are there, they... they they walked me through everything, they taught me everything, and they always, always said, if you have any questions, please let me know, I'm right here. And they're wandering around this kind of, it's an open office space, all of the exercise stations are around, it kind of looks like a, like a, a low-budget gym, um, because there's a lot of open space with just a few different exercise machines and things around. Um, and so they're like, hey, we're, you're independent, you can go and do your exercises when you come in, and if you have any questions, if you forget how to do something, you let us know, we are here for you. And even if they're across the room, I know they're there and I can easily call on them if I have any, any issues or, or any questions. And it's nice because I don't, there's, there's this little bit of embarrassment you feel when you do some of these exercises. Um, it's, it's the same thing that happens when someone goes to the gym, but it just feels weird. Like you sit on this chair at one point and it wobbles back and forth and you have to do this weird exercise where you jut out your chest and then curve back and, and, and lean forward, and you do that like six times in a row, and you just feel a little ridiculous the whole time. But knowing there are others with you that are doing the same thing makes you feel better. And the fact that the nurse tech sat and walked me through it step by step helped me have confidence to know that, hey, this was okay to do, and I didn't have to feel ridiculous doing it. And their presence there is so helpful and so important. And so this week... Thinking about presence and talking about presence, today I want to talk about God's presence. As, we have, uh, as I've told you before, last, last time we talked about forgiveness and loving your enemies, we are currently working through a series I've called Unlearn, where we are talking about some misconceptions and, and misunderstandings we may have of Scripture um, or of our Christian lives. Some of these misunderstandings have come as a result of culture, some as a result of tradition, some as a result of, hey, I just grew up this way. This is what I was always taught, so isn't this the way it is? And so while I, some mornings, peel off the Band-Aid, it might be a little bit painful, and you might get a little bit mad at me. But I promise, as you know of me, I try to put every message and frame every message as a message of hope, a message of joy and love that Jesus has for you and for me. So today we're going to be talking about the mystery of God's presence. Where is God? Now in the Old Testament, Israel is saved from Egypt after over 400 years in slavery. And they are wandering in the desert for 40 years in a span of land that actually probably should have only taken them like a week to get through. And they're going around in circles for 40 years. Years And in that time, and, and um, Tom, I thank you for mentioning this chapter in your sermon last week in Exodus 25. God is talking to Moses. He commands them to take an offering from 
the people. And in verse 8, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, that I will dwell among them. Verse 9, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And as the camp of Israel would move from place to place, they would tear down this tabernacle and they would rebuild it at their next location. And the purpose of this tabernacle was to house God's presence in it. It would stand in the center of the camp and it would always be a reminder that God is in your midst. And it was built extravagantly. Because it was always a reminder that God's presence is to be taken seriously. That God's presence is fantastic. It is awesome. And I don't mean awesome like great. I mean literally it, it inspires awe when you are in God's presence. And in the very heart of that tabernacle sat the Ark of the Covenant, which of course had the Ten Commandments in it. <coughs> a reminder that with God's presence comes God's way of living. God's prescription for life. The covenant to follow God, the covenant to be his people was kept in the very heart of that camp at all times. So Israel then enters the promised land through the next section of the Old Testament, establish its establishes itself in the promised land by God's hand. And Israel asks for a king, and after a while, David is selected as king. So we fast forward to 2 Samuel, where David is reigning. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we pick up the story. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I want to pause right there, because what David has brought up is very much like what you and I would do today. See, David wants to do something good for God. And he thinks that what has been done for God and God's presence has been lackluster. He says, why am I in this nice palace? Why am I on this nice throne and God's presence is in a tent? Why do I get all the nice things and God doesn't? What comes, is, what, what comes from David is a heart that wants to avoid idolatry. And says, I want to celebrate God, I want to worship God, and this is a good intent. This is a very good intent from David. We try to honor God by what we build, by what we wear, by what we say. And so David wants to do the same, and he feels guilty for having nicer accommodations than God. And Nathan, Nathan the prophet even gives David his blessings. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Verse 4. But. There is this saying, I've used it in here before, that the word but cancels everything to the left. In other words, if I tell you I'm sorry, but, 
it was your fault. Am I really sorry? The butt cancels everything to the left, and here is no different. The beginning of verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. And I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? When I commanded the shepherds of my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is a reminder, and it's actually a word of comfort to me, this moment that Nathan has between him and God, that reminds me that even the prophets had to do some guesswork from time to time. And here's what I mean by that. In the moment that David and David is talking with Nathan, he says, look, I want to build this for God. God didn't show up to Nathan and speak to him right then and say, no, stop him. He let that situation play out. And so Nathan in that moment says, okay, well, if God isn't saying anything to me, then he must be with David here. And so Nathan gives the blessing. Not every word out of a prophet's mouth is meant to be from God, unless God made it so. In fact, every time a prophet speaks for God, we're usually preceded by the Lord appeared or the Lord said to the prophet. And it is always preceded by a specific message given by God. Now, I'm not discrediting prophets. I am simply reminding us that prophets are human too, and that we can take comfort in knowing that even in the Old Testament, when Israel was led by a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night, even they had to guess sometimes. Even they had to guess sometimes. So God talks to Nathan and says to deliver this message. And what God is saying is he says, David, hold up. I never told you to build me a house. In fact, I never told anyone to build me a house. Ever since the beginning, ever since I rescued Israel, I have gone where Israel has gone. I have fought where Israel has fought. And I have done everything Israel has done. You know, save the sin part. Think about history, David. Did I ever tell them to build me a house? No. My instructions were to build me a tabernacle. You use a tent when you can't. You don't use it when you live somewhere. And then God pulls one of the most epic reversals I have ever seen in Scripture with the next part of what he says. So we'll pick up. In verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's kind of like uh, the famous quote from John F. Kennedy. You know, ask not what, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Okay, but this is, this is kind of a reversal from God. He says, look, don't ask, what, don't ask what you can do for me because I'm going to do for you. He reverses it. So stop trying to do all these great things for me. I'm trying to do great things for you and in you and through you. You are not the one to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. One of the most epic reversals I have ever seen in Scripture. I am the one who establishes you. You are not the one who establishes me. That is what God says. He says, you want to do these things for you, but I'm already doing these things for you. So we'll finish starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 17, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So he tells David, look, you're not even the one that's going to build me a house. In fact, it will be your descendant. And beyond that, it's not even for my presence, but rather for my name. In other words, David, your descendant will build a house that will recognize my name, that will reveal my name, and that will be purposed to make my name known. It's no longer for God's presence, but for God's revelation. And for the rest of the Old Testament, after Solomon builds this temple, Solomon being David's son, for the rest of the Old Testament, Israel would live with the temple system, and what was done in the tabernacle would now be done in the temple, which gives you an extra idea for how significant exile was. Because any time Israel was removed from Israel and taken into Babylon and taken into captivity, they were not just being removed from their home. They were being removed from where they had placed the presence of God. To be in exile was literally to be separated from God because of the system that was set up. And yet, God was faithful and he would rescue them over and over and over again and he would help them rebuild. And he would reestablish them in his presence. But for God, it seems that that wasn't enough. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You might be tracking with me on this. 
I try not to hide where I'm going. I try not to pull the, pull the rug out from under you. I try to be pretty straightforward. But we are going to be reading John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. You and I know who that light is. You know who the word is. It was Jesus himself. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, John writes this introduction after Jesus has lived, after Jesus has walked among the earth. And so he's saying, look, this is a real quick summary of everything you're about to read. He came to his people and some rejected him and others accepted him. And all who did accept him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. But look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The NIV actually frames this as he made his, his dwelling among us. I believe the, the King James Version says he dwelt among us. You see, simply reestablishing Israel in Jerusalem, reestablishing them around the temple was not enough for God. No, he said, I am going to put my presence with them through a form that they can recognize. And it will walk among them. It will be portable again. Israel sought to put God literally in a box. And God said, I am so much bigger than that. I will walk with you. He tells David, look, I've always wanted to be portable. I've always wanted to be where you are, to go where you go, to walk where you walk. I never intended to be still. I never intended to be in one place while you are off in another. I never intended to be here while you are there. I intended to be with you. So I will be with you. God gets what God wants. And God chases after us even to the ends of the earth. Because from the very beginning, what has God desired? To dwell with his creation. See, in Genesis, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, when, when they sin... It says that as God was walking in the garden, he's calling out to them. God's presence literally was with his creation. 
And when they sinned, it caused a separation. It caused a rift that God would spend the next few thousand years correcting. That would culminate in him coming in the flesh and in the blood to save us from that sin, to restore that connection, to rebuild that bridge. That each of us could come into the presence of God without needing an intercessor, without needing someone between us, because Jesus is taking care of that. So from the beginning, God has wanted to dwell with his creation. As Israel, in Israel's infancy, God wants to dwell with them wherever they go. And in their teenage years, so to speak, every time they wander off, he brings them right back. And then he sends his son to walk with them. And when he leaves, he says, my spirit will come and will rest upon you and you will do great signs and many wonders. And then check this out in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. I want you to see this as clear as day. In Revelation 21, near the very end of Scripture, you might have actually turned to like the concordance in the back of your Bible, some of the, the definitions and, and dictionaries back there. But... Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, our story begins with God's presence. The entire struggle, because if you didn't know, Israel literally means struggle. The entire struggle of God's people is defined by coming in and out of his presence. Then God says, all right, fine. If you can't stay in it, then I'm going to come to you. And so God's presence is now defined as being among us, but intangibly. We can't see it. We can't feel it. We can't grab it. And so at the end, God says, I'm going to fully reveal and fully reestablish my presence among my creation because that's what I've desired from the beginning. Because I love my creation. Because I love my people. And so the entire overarching theme of, the entire overarching narrative of scripture is that God will reestablish his presence with his people. But we fall into the trap of David. Because while David was trying to not be idolatrous, while he was trying not to think of something more than God, in his irony, he did that very thing. Because he began to think that it is the place that matters more than who is in it. He said God's presence isn't enough. It needs to be in this fantastic place. It needs to be in this beautiful place. Even though God never asked for it from David. We build buildings to house God when God never asked to be housed. 
David thought that God's accommodations were the problem, but God says, no, it's the where that's the problem. Don't lock me up. Take me with you. Here's where some of you get mad. This place, the room that we're in, we call it a sanctuary. But for too long in our history have we made this a place of idolatry. Thinking that God's presence is somehow more here than it is everywhere else among us. 1 Corinthians 6 is your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The entire purpose of God coming was to dwell among his people wherever they go. But somehow, somewhere along the line, we made God's presence, we tried to force it back into a box, literally. And so we ascribe all these rules and regulations to what happens when you come in those doors and enter into this room. Because somehow we think you're entering into God's presence. God was present with you before you walked in the door. And he's just as present with you when you come in. There's nothing special about this room. What's, what makes this room special is simply that we are together in it and worshiping. And anywhere that we do that, anywhere that we do that becomes special. We attach some holy reverence to a building instead of the very presence of God. And that, friends, is idolatry. Now, pastor, we prayed over this building. We prayed a prayer of dedication over this building. Yes, and Cain sacrificed his vegetables in full, with fully good intentions, and yet still it was not accepted. Your prayer of dedication does not make something holy. God makes it holy. God's presence makes it holy. And the prayers of dedication typically are not meant for God to simply make something holy by magic. But they serve as a reminder to us of the purpose of the place we have built. But we cannot keep falling into the trap that says the place we are in is somehow more holy because God is more present here than elsewhere. Because he's with you wherever you go. But I've seen it over and over again. You cannot have, um, you cannot have a bottled water in the church sanctuary. You can't have this in the church sanctuary. You can't wear that into the church sanctuary. Now I'm going to talk about this later. But the only time, the only time that I ever wore a suit when I went to spend time with my father was when I buried him. When God teaches us how to pray, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says he opens with Father. When we enter into the presence of our Father, it is not what we wear that matters. It is that we are in God's presence with a right heart, contrite heart, a humble heart, accepting and acknowledging that he is our Savior. It is not the place that matters. It's the God that matters. Amen. Even Ellen White's instructions regarding our behavior in the sanctuary really only happens within the context of two things, God's presence and our purpose while we're in here. But it is not about the room itself. It always has to do with worship. 
See, God has made his presence about a people, not about a place. And we sin when we put that place above the people. We sin when we act as if he is more present in this room than he is anywhere else. And we lack intentionality when we assume that we enter into his presence here. Because when we assume that his presence is more here than it is out there, then the other six days of the week will live as if he's here, not there. In fact, the rest of the Sabbath day will live as if God's presence somehow stayed here and didn't come with us. But God is with his people. God is with his people. But there are so many churches where the sanctuary has been prayed over and it's treated with utmost reverence because the presence of God is presumed to be there. But if you walk into those churches, you see how the people behave, how they treat each other. You actually find out that God is literally the only one not there. You know what I mean by that. Obviously, he's still there. And sometimes that can be us. And the thing that makes Christianity so tough is to constantly look in the mirror and say, in what ways have I fallen short that God can transform me in? And so my call to you this morning is if you have considered a place more holy my call to you is to repent and to remember that it is God's presence that is holy. I would remind you that God's presence is with you wherever you go. That the overarching narrative of scripture is that God was with you in the beginning, he's with you in the middle, and he's going to be with you in the end. And that presence will never leave you. And I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful that I don't have to wait to come into God's presence, but that it is available to me at all hours of the day. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and in all your ways acknowledge him. I've preached on this before. The Hebrew word for acknowledge is the same word used to describe Adam and Eve knowing each other. In other words, it denotes intimacy. It's not just crediting God in all your ways and saying, hey, thanks for being a part. It's in all your ways being intimate with him because he is with you wherever you go. And I don't tell you that so that you're guilty for thinking something wrong in the middle of the day. I'm not saying that so you feel terrible and shame yourself because, oh, in the presence of God, I messed up again. God's presence is bigger than your mess. And he will forgive you if you are faithful to confess and repent. But as we move forward, we've talked about, as we come to a close this morning, we've talked about several changes we're making to this building. We've talked about upgrades we're making. We've talked about um, quality of life things. We've, you've seen the, the acoustic panels is the most obvious one I can think of right now, but there are more coming. We've done and we're doing the aesthetics, but now what matters is the interpersonal. Now what matters is how we treat each other, and it's mattered all along, don't get me wrong. But when I remember that God's presence is with me everywhere, and it's with you everywhere, when I remember that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit the same way that mine is, 
then how I treat you is suddenly incredibly important. If I, I remember, we pulled a prank on some students when I taught at high school. I think I've told this story before, where on October 22, we told them there would be free pizza. And then at lunch, they somehow brought, pulled the rumor, either they, they, they grew it even more and said there'd be free pizza and ice cream in the campus ministry's office at lunch. And at, at lunch, we locked the door. We put a sign on the door that said free pizza and ice cream has been canceled in honor of October 22, 1844. Happy Great Disappointment Day. <laughs> they got real mad. And I remember all of the Bible teachers were sitting inside. It became an object lesson and a great discussion for the rest of that week. But I remember all the Bible teachers were sitting inside listening to them as they got mad and banged on the door trying to get in, wondering where we were. And we all walked out as a group. And there was one of the Bible teachers that is a really big guy, works out a lot. I mean, you, you see him in the chapel and he'll be like lifting, powerlifting chairs. I'm not kidding. The, the guy was big. And we're all walking out and this group of students comes up to us angry and like, we canceled our lunch plans and they're ready, they're looking for a fight. We're staff members. And then I remember they looked over my shoulder, and they saw the big guy with us. And they said, have a great day, and they walked away. How different do we treat each other when we remember that we are in the presence of the Almighty? And so my second and final call to you this morning, I guess this afternoon, is to treat each other as if you were in the very presence of God because you are. And that is something to rest in confidence in, not something to be afraid of. God's love and his presence is with you wherever you go, no matter what you do and no matter where you go.